It's like the strength that like everything else in your life is like filtered through. It's like your prism. Uh, my number one strength is inclusivity. And so a passage about handing somebody over to Satan, kick them out, that doesn't really like, ah, it kind of gets me like hyperventilating. You're like, ha, 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 what am I supposed to do with that? You know, include, include, you know. Uh, and so it really caused me like, I really need to wrestle with this and like sit into it. What is the truth um, being shared? And, um, you know, I think about my father when I think about this passage, not because of the bad things, but because in a good way, in an analogy, uh, my dad coached football at El Camino College for 35 years. And so he would recruit people from Carson and Banning and Maricosta, Redondo, West Torrance, North Torrance, El Segundo, all over the South Bay. And when they would come to El Camino College to hopefully get, and then get a scholarship to a major university to play football, um, they brought with them uh, some habits that they had learned at their high school. But not all these habits necessarily were most beneficial. In fact, some of them were downright detrimental to the functioning of their own game at El Camino College, but then also to the whole functioning of the team. And so oftentimes my dad would be like, uh, okay, the way that you're kick-stepping right now or the way your head's always bending over you know, when you block, that's not good. You might have gotten away with it in high school because you were so much bigger, stronger than everybody else, but in college, you're called to a new level. You're called to a different team, and you got to start playing with, in a new way, right? In a new a way that, that everyone can function together. Because if you don't, if you hold on to that, the whole team is going to suffer, and you are going to suffer as a result of that. And so my, my dad, the coach, is loving, caring, and, and also very strong, you know, of like pointing out, um, you know, what was wrong. In fact, one technique he liked to use sometimes, when I got to play for him one year, which was really fun at El Camino, and I was a quarterback, and he was an offensive line coach. And uh, so he really went after guys who uh, maybe missed a block, and I got nailed as a result of it. And so I'll never forget walking by a meeting room one time, and my dad's pausing on this, like, shot, like, the film room of me getting absolutely crushed. And my dad goes, so, uh, I forget the guy's name, but, like, hey, George, what do you have against my grandkids someday? What are you doing here, you know? And he's, like, just rewind, play, watching me get crushed, then rewind, Crush, you know, rewind, crush. Do you get the memo? Like, don't do this ever again, you know? Keep your head up. Um, but I share that story because I really think that this is what the Apostle Paul is getting at here is he's, he's reminding us of a new way of living. And some of us are still maybe caught with some habits or, or things that uh, are holding us back from real freedom and from real healthy flourishing in Christ because God cares so much about the um, health and the holistic functioning of the people of God together. And he knows that if one of us is sick, then all of us are going to be hindered by that. And so the Apostle Paul here is going after that which is hindering not only one person, but it's hindering the whole community. And so he wants all of us to be caught into, how do we do this well? How do we live well? And that really is his concern. As a cruciform community, you know, the people who are defined by Jesus— how do we live in faithful witness uh, as the people of God? I remember when I went on to play in college uh, at Eastern, uh, I played a game against Eastern Washington, which is near Spokane. If everyone's ever been there, they know it gets cold and foggy, especially in the fall. And so I was a backup, and I didn't get to play much, but I finally got into the game, right? And so I'm excited, like, finally get my chance to get in there. And then the other thing that's fun about getting to play is if you do well, then during film review on Monday with the other quarterbacks there, you can kind of be like, hey, look at my throw, look at my touchdown pass. You know, you can kind of boast yourself up a little bit and feel good about yourself. 
Um, the, the other side, the flip side of film review is that if you don't do it well, like I mentioned earlier, you get reamed by your coach and then you start feeling pretty, you know, like, oh man, I suck. Uh, but I remember one game, I get in there, I did pretty well, you know, I had some good passes, didn't have some great passes, but I did okay. And so I go on Monday, ready to get film, uh, get reviewed by the film and, and together there with the quarterbacks and the coach. And we get to the fourth quarter and it's impossible to see the field. It's totally impossible to see the field because the fog rolled in so thick that they couldn't even see the players. You couldn't see the players on the field. I'm like, man, really? I don't even get a chance to like see myself get reviewed or get better, right? Because the fog is so thick. And I was thinking about this is really interesting because I like, in one hand, it was kind of relieving that we didn't get to critique me because it, it, there was so fog. You couldn't get, I couldn't get critiqued, right? But then on the other hand, I didn't actually get to learn and grow. Like the coach didn't actually get to see it and then speak truth into like what I was doing so that I could get better as a quarterback. And it was this really interesting dilemma, I think, uh, that was going on there. And um, I think that's actually what's maybe something going on here. A dynamic that we see here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is a reality that for many of us, man, we're just kind of like, it's just easy just to be in the fog of life times. Just to do our thing, it's good enough to be on the field, just to kind of get in the game, right, following Jesus, but to really open our lives up to the work of the Spirit, to open our lives up to people where they actually can see us, see the work of God in our lives, and then people speaking into our life, that is really risky. It's vulnerable, and it's so much easier just to be in the fog and to be comfortable right there, because we can kind of just get by. But Jesus is never after our comfort. He will comfort us, but not just to make us comfortable. He wants us to grow. Because we can be comfortable and not fully mature. We'll be immature. As he wrote earlier, we're just giving you spiritual milk because you're not ready yet. God desperately desires us to grow into Christ, to, to be a vibrant community of faith. But you know, for us, we have to ask, you know, are there areas of our life, and as a church, collectively, are we just kind of in the fog? And we're just kind of cool right there, so no one can really, like, look into our life and say, hey, we want you to grow and mature. And so what I want to do today is jump into how I think in chapter 5 here we see the Apostle Paul fleshing out what this means to grow in covenant faithfulness, and particularly how I think the Apostle Paul is embodying what it means uh, to be the cruciform community. So point number one is we have to have relational integrity with each other. We have to have relational integrity. Uh, and to me, relational integrity is to, to seeking to be truthful and honest in all our relationships with ourself and with each other. And this is how the Apostle Paul, I think, is demonstrating this. Look at verse one. It says, it is actually reported. Okay, so actually reported. Now jump to verse nine. I wrote to you in my letter and verse 11, but now I am writing to you. There's an ongoing correspondence and interaction, a, a relationship going on through correspondence, through letter writing. He was also there in person. He's no longer there now. But the Apostle Paul has a relationship with the Corinthian church. He cares about them deeply. This isn't somebody just, here's my wisdom for you, just go and do it. But he actually knows them, and he's staying in connection with them. I think he's putting that connection and that relationship first in the foreground before he kind of lays out, you know, this truth that they really need to hear. 
I think it's you know, like a good coach that says, hey, you're on the team, and I'm committed to you to see you grow as a player. You know, not just there to critique you, but actually to say, hey, I'm committed to you. And so they're in that relationship with each other. Uh, secondly, again, to underscore how deeply he cares about the Corinthian community, uh, he cares about their health, their, their vibrancy as a community in their faithful living. If you turn back to chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says, I write these things to you not to shame you, not to shame you, but to teach you, to admonish you, to build you up, right, as I'm your father, he says. He uses that language of, you're my children in Christ, and I'm your father, and I love you, and I'm going to grow you, I want to admonish you and teach you. That's the relational integrity Paul has with this community. He cares deeply about them, and he, he knows that they need to know that. They need to know that. Because isn't it true that shame only divides us? It just keeps us hidden yeah, I think shame separates us. It, it allows the work of the enemy to discourage us, to keep us in the fog. It, it, it tells us, hey, don't risk it. Don't step out into the light of love of Jesus to be exposed because, and then you start playing the shame tape in your head. Things you've done in the past, uh, mistakes, maybe moments you have stepped out in vulnerability and you've been hurt even more. And so that baggage of shame holds us back. And so the Apostle Paul is clear in saying, when I teach you, admonishing you, you need to know it's not to shame you. I love you. Step into this deeper reality of Christian community with me. I'm all in. You need to be an all in too. So he cares for them. And then also Paul doesn't just, he singles out you know, an issue here, but it's clear that he sees the deeper reality going on. You know, it's like a good therapist who, when, when you go to a therapist and you start talking about one thing, they kind of flip it on you and ask a question about something else that you don't think is related at all. But then all of a sudden you're like, wait, why are we talking about that? And, and then they piece it together and you're like, oh my gosh, I never thought how like, my relationship with my wife actually might affect my like, relationship at, at work or like, the way I'm feeling at work might actually influence my relationship with my wife. And, and then as a pastor, we, we received training in seminary on what we call family systems, family systems therapy. And you realize how maybe parents couldn't enter into a counseling session to talk about one child's you know, behavior, and it's a problem, and they're acting out. And then you know, you're trained to ask questions to get beneath the behavior to ask about how the family is functioning together in wholeness. Because what we realize is that oftentimes children are the symptom bearers of the larger dysfunction, maybe hidden addictions, things that are going on between parents or the whole family. And so you have to get at the root issue, the thing underlying all of it. And that's what the Pulse of Paul, I think, is doing here. Yes, he calls out behavior that isn't appropriate, but also he's saying, look what he does here in verse 1, that there's sexual immorality among you. He's including you all, the whole community. It's not just sexual immorality of this one person. He's somehow saying that the sin is embedded within the whole community. And he says this in verse 2, and you are arrogant about it. And you are arrogant. He's seeing a deeper reality going on here. Look at verse 6. Your boasting is not a good thing. Your boasting is not a good thing. He's seeing that the way that maybe Corinthians in their enlightened spirituality somehow are saying, ah, you know, maybe we're free in Christ and eh, that's okay, they can do that. And, that, you know, it's, it's something we do in Corinth here, you know, that 
kind of sexual immorality. I mean, yeah, it's that's what the pagans do, but we're free in Christ, so let's just no limits, you know, let, let's let it run. And Paul's like, no, no at all. That's not what it means to be free in Christ. That's not what it means to, to live that cruciform community. And so Paul brings it back and saying, don't be arrogant about this. You should be mourning about this. This is tragic. This is sad. So humble yourself about all this stuff. So he, again, he's including the whole community in this problem. And that, to me, is what's key about relational integrity. It's, it's you're seeing the deeper reality going on in people's lives. And you're calling them into wholeness and health, not just to fix that one problem, but you're actually inviting people into a way of living that is healing for them and healing for everyone around them. So to me, relational integrity is at the heart uh, of what it means to live a cruciform community. And I'm thinking about, um, Todd and I had a great conversation at our staff dinner uh, time together on Friday, and we were talking about a book that he was reading. And he was sharing with me a book he's reading by uh, an author in New Zealand who says one of these really big lies that somehow Christians have come to believe is that we can't live holy lives, that it's actually impossible to be holy. And it was funny because I was like, oh, that's interesting. And we were kind of thinking and talking about it. And I was like, well, I know God is holy and I'm not. But then it's like, yeah, but Jesus also says in quoting Leviticus, be holy as the Lord your God is holy. So is Jesus just a trickster? Is he just saying, hey, be holy, but you really can't be? <laughs> I don't think so. I think he, act, he really does mean you can be holy. Now, again, sin will always entangle us, right? And we, in that sanctification process, until the final day when Jesus comes again, we will keep wrestling with that. But we can live holy moments. And this is what Todd and I were talking about. Holy moments that we can live and that refine us and shape us as a community of faith, as individuals, to live in that grace that God has given us. Because I think oftentimes we think, okay, I'm going to be holy, so I'm going to go ahead and do all these things. Read my Bible more. I'm not going to sin, right? And then I'm going to start checking off my list, and now I can do it. Wait a second. You just went from the grace of God giving you to, okay, now I'm going to do everything. And we've made that jump to my moral effort will keep me, will will make me holy. No, that's not it at all. It's actually in the surrendering to the very thing that makes us holy is what will compel us along the journey. I think that uh, AA is something that an organization has got this really well. The very first step of an Alcoholics Anonymous, if you've been a part of AA groups, is a complete surrendering to a higher power. They know that if anyone's been a part of it, you can't get healthy, you can't get better until the first step, complete surrender. And that's what I think Paul is saying here is we have to completely surrender our lives as a whole community to the work of God in us. And when we do that, then that holiness of God works in our lives and we're able to live in those holy moments with one another. I think about what Jesus says here in Matthew 5, 23 through 24. When you're offering your gift on the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and sister and then come and offer your gift. You see what Jesus says here? Hey, wait, before you do your thing with God, you need to do something with your brother and sister. You need to have relational integrity with each other because there's something deeper going on here. If the wholeness and the holiness of the community isn't right, then what really is your gift? 
I mean, I think, is it, but it's so much easier just to go to the place and do our thing, offer our gift, than to actually be reconciled with one another, to do the hard work of holiness. Um, this past summer, Tara and I had an experience where we got to see and experience one of those holy moments and see a couple, uh, I think, embody what it means to follow Christ and to live in a, as a cruciform community. And I had said some words that, that hurt uh, this couple named Tyler and Shara Stevens, and they're in our grounded group, and we're good friends. And I had said some things that had, had hurt them. And so rather than just saying, ah, just sweep it under the rug, or time heals all wounds, so let's just move on from it, they actually sought us out and said, hey, there's a, there's a rift here, and we want to step into it with you, and we want to talk about it openly and honestly. So they came over for dinner. We sat down together, talked about it openly, shared where we are with each other, and moved forward. And we, maybe there's some things, disagreements we still had about how things played out. But I tell you what, that relational integrity, it was so key for that relationship moving forward. And there's now an integrity and honesty and a strength in that bond of a friendship moving forward. And so I honor Tyler and Shara for seeing the problem, going and being reconciled with me uh, and Tara before offering their gift on the altar. So in order to have uh, healthy healthy relationships and, uh, and really demonstrate holiness, we have to have relational integrity with each other. And to me, one, the second point that really undergirds all this is that we have to have trust with each other. In order to have relational integrity, in order to live out our lives as a, a faithful community, we have to have trust with each other. Uh, Paul Linsoni, who is a, a great writer, um, wrote the book called The Advantage, and if you haven't read him, he's a, a really great thinker. And he's talking about how organizations across all different industries, um, they have great teams, a lot of skill, they have great intelligence. But the ones who have the advantage, the ones who really do well, you know what they have better than anyone else? Is they have health. They're healthy as an organization. And so it's interesting, he's like puts, he puts the health of the organization showing in his research above skill level, academic level, right, where you've been, and even like top talent. You have to function together right in order for that skill to come out. And isn't that true? I mean, I remember like seeing so many great players come through El Camino College uh, when my, while growing up, my dad was coaching there, but they never lived up to their talent. And you have to wonder, like there were other elements going on in life that they weren't healthy to exhibit that talent out on the field. And so I wonder for us, like, Oftentimes, we aren't living into the fullness of what God has for us because we're not healthy and maybe healthy as a functioning community. And trust is so important in that. And look at, uh, I want to quote Linsoni here about these organizations and what he finds in his research. It says, the kind of trust that is necessary to build a great team is what I call vulnerability-based trust. This is what happens when members get to a point where they are completely comfortable being transparent, honest, and naked with one another. Again, this is not naked like the sexual immorality naked. Just want to make that clear since we are talking about that. Naked emotionally. Uh, with one another where they can say genuinely and uh, mean things like, I screwed up. I need help. Your idea is better than mine. And even, I'm sorry. Man, when leaders lead that way, it just creates an environment where you can say, oh, we can trust each other. We can step into this. And, and this is what Linsoni says, the, the companies that do this have the advantage. They're the ones that are leading the way because they have that, 
that foster in their culture. And then again, let me quote him. He says, the only way for teams to build real trust is for team members to come clean about who they are, warts and all. And so I think Paul is doing that. He's saying, hey, Corinthian community, here's a wart. Let's talk about it, right? Let's talk about this. And he's being honest. Because isn't it so much better rather than somebody who says, let's do it, rather than, and eh, let's just bypass that and go on to something else. Man, every time you bypass, I don't care what organization, what you, we do for a job, anytime you say, let's not deal with it, maybe we deal with it later, it comes back to bite you in the butt, doesn't it? It comes to hurt you. Deal with it now. You deal with the issue because you know you can't move forward fully without it. And so this is what the Pulse of Paul is getting at. He's getting at this issue. Uh, I also think Paul leads the way in this type of vulnerability. And, uh, let me share here, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, if you guys remember, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, Paul says, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with plausible words of wisdom, but with demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might rest not on human wisdom, but on the power of God. Now, let's be honest. Paul was the man, right? Paul was the man. He was educated. He was a stud. But he does not lead with that. He didn't say, hey, you should listen to me because of X, Y, and Z. Here are my credentials. He leads with the power of the Spirit of God is working. And I am nothing compared to that, right? And I'm just stepping in. My life is surrendered to that. And so that's what I want demonstrated through my life. And that's what he leads with. That's the kind of vulnerability that I think we're called to in the church with one another is to lead in our relationships because that's what fosters trust. That's what fosters trust in our relationship. Paul also embodies this sense of trust uh, in reminding the Corinthian church of the Exodus narrative of liberation. I don't know if you caught it in the reading, but if you look at uh, verses 6 through, through 8, Paul talks about getting rid of the old yeast so that there's a new yeast coming. For our Paschal Lamb, right, the Lamb of the Passover, Christ, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let's celebrate the festival, the Passover, so to speak, not with the old yeast of malice and envy, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Exodus is all about liberation. We have been liberated from the power of sin and death by Jesus, by the cross, through his resurrection. And Paul's saying, don't go back. You're pulling in something from your old life. You have to keep moving forward. You've been liberated from that, so live into that. Jesus, our Paschal Lamb, live into him. Be reminded of who you are in him, and that's where your power comes from. So live into that. So he's using Exodus here uh, in our passage of Scripture to remind it, to trust the work of God. And if you know the Exodus narrative, you'll be reminded of when the Israelites first got out of bondage, one of the first things they did, do you guys remember? First things they did was say, you know what? I don't know if we actually trust God. So they had Aaron build an idol. And that's really what idol worship is. It's a a mistrust, right? It's believing in something else rather than actually God. And so they they built up an idol for themselves. It's like, how could that be possible? If you're reading the story, you're like, God just freed you from Egypt where you've been for 400 years and then you build an idol like one page later? 
How is that possible? And then if it gets even worse, they're like, yeah, maybe we should even go back to Egypt because they had we'd all this food there. And it's like, wow, really? But man, I tell you what, isn't that often the truth? We take that step of faith and we, we know God's moved in our life and then something happens and you're like, God, can I actually really, can I trust you? I mean, I know you've shown up for me before, but can I really trust you? Because if, I, if you were for me, God, this wouldn't be, right? And it's like we're just led right back into mistrust, into shame, into isolation, into malice and envy or uh, in evil rather than the freedom that Jesus gives us. And so Paul's reminding the church here, you can trust, trust God. In fact, the refrain throughout so much of the Old Testament, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. With a mighty hand, I delivered you. Over and over again, Scripture reminds us of God's faithfulness to us. Because we're prone to wander, right? Prone to wander. Prone to mistrust. But God reminds us of his faithfulness, his fidelity. And so we can trust him. We can trust him. Uh, you know, it's one thing, another thing that's important about trust uh, is trust sets a foundation to receive words that maybe we don't want to hear. And uh, this is why it's so important to have a foundation of trust in order to create relational integrity and so also that we can be a community who speaks truth and receives truth. And so point three is that we need to speak truth to each other and receive truth from each other. Uh, I think a great book about being the people of God, and it's called Living into Community by Christine Powell. She writes this about people who speak truth and a truth community. People who love truth build others up with it rather than using it to tear them down. Much of our truth-telling should involve affirming what is right and good. Being truthful is not only about speaking hard things, but discerning the whole picture with gentleness, humility, and patience. We should hear the Apostle Paul's words earlier that says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. I don't know if you've ever been on the receiving end of like, hey, I got a word for you. You know, or like maybe a truth for you, and somebody's come to you like telling you something, and afterwards you're like, that sounded more like you just wanted to tell me something <laughs> rather than actually you caring about me to like change, you know? Uh, I know I felt that way. Uh, oftentimes, terror receives the brunt of this. You know, I'm feeling anxious and like about something I just got to like tell her something, you know? And it's like, okay, you know? It's like that was just about appeasing my anxiety or me feeling like secure and being right about something rather than actually having the other person in mind to build them up. And so I think a lot of us have experienced this in church. And I think a lot of people who aren't invested in a community, faith community, are probably not invested because they've had these hard experiences where maybe somebody told them the truth but had no love and compassion and grace. They weren't known. You know, like as Christine Paul says, they weren't, they weren't able to hear how this was actually building them up rather than just telling them like it is, so to speak. And so she goes on to write, if our ultimate purpose in truth-telling is helping persons and communities grow in maturity in Christ then our motives need to be centered in a desire to strengthen people in goodness and godliness. Wow, what a great word for us. To strengthen us in goodliness and, goodness and godliness is to remind us that this is what is important to do because it's for you. And we get to do this, right? It isn't that like we have to. And it's we get to do this. We get to be the people of God. We're invited by the grace of God to faithfully live out the most amazing calling ever in the world. 
it, I mean, to be God's people, to be chosen by him, who wouldn't want to be a part of that team? And uh, I think about the Apostle Paul's way of doing this is he hearkens back to Deuteronomy. Uh, and if you know anything about Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament is all about how to faithfully live in the, in the, land, of, in the land of Israel so that um, you won't be kicked out again after the Babylonian exile. It's like how to relive faithfully for God so that this horrible thing never happens again. And so Deuteronomy is all about fidelity to God. And so we hear words from Deuteronomy, in, uh, particularly in verses 9 through 13. And so when these words do sound harsh, like, um, I, w- I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral persons. Again, these are maybe people thinking about just the outside of the world. Paul's words are for us inside the community because he knows that people who function in ways that are unhealthy, it's going to take us down. It's like with teenagers, we talk about, man, those aren't good friends for you. They're just pulling you down. They're not helping you live into your calling of who you are. And that's what good friendship does, right? It empowers us to be more fully who we are. And so Paul's saying these things that I think in a, when we just read it, it's like, oh, that sounds, sounds kind of harsh, right? People are greedy or robbers or idolaters. Um, but now he's like, don't associate with anyone who's a brother or sister, but who participates in all these other activities that go against what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and then he quotes Deuteronomy here. It's a refrain in Deuteronomy, but in, in N13 it says, God will judge those outside, drive out the wicked person from among you. And so there's this sense of like, you know what? If we're focusing on who God wants for us to be, and so we want to be faithful to him, and we're living in relational integrity and there's trust, this sense of driving out, it's not our job to find out the person and the name of the person who's being wrong and then go after them and kick them out of the community. That's the spirit of God that's going to convict hearts and people will choose not to participate in the health. We live faithfully. We keep our eyes on Jesus. We live faithfully in, in knowing what the truth is and embody that truth and the wickedness will fall outside. Let's keep our eyes on our family, on who we are, and function healthy together. Speaking truth when we need to, and hard truth at times. But I'm reminded of Proverbs 27, it talks about wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. And isn't that true? That often it's the people who have maybe hard things for us, that hurt us at first, that we can say, I know you love me, and you actually desire something better for me. Uh, you know, I don't know if you ever experienced this in marriage, that sometimes a spouse can hurt you. Have you ever had that before? I don't know if you have. Never, yeah. Uh, or I don't know if you know the Enneagram, but uh, on the Enneagram, I'm a two, which is like the best kind, I guess. I don't know. Uh, I think that's what Jesus was. Nice. Uh, no, but a two's like primary prompting is to like meet the needs of others and to like, you know, that's the kind of your relationship. You filter things through that. And uh, so, of course, I'm like, I'm the best husband ever. I'm always taking care of needs. I'm doing all these things. And I'll never forget, actually, you know, when, uh, this is not that long ago, like, I don't know, a month ago or yesterday. Uh, no, it wasn't yesterday. Um, <laughs> where Tara and I are having a conversation, and, it, and the words were, it's hard to love you. What? Hard to love me? I mean, I do the dishes. I do like a best father. And I start rallying all this stuff. And it's like, oh, my, oh man, this is all about me. It is hard to love me. Wow. 
You know, and it's like, whew, that hurts. It wounded me, right, to that realization. So you can be defensive and be like, how dare you say that, blah, blah, you know, but it's like, oh, you're just trying to protect your ego. But you could submit that ego and say, ooh, nice. Things are falling down here. Okay, hopefully it's an uh, illustration for our ego. You know, we can submit and say, you know what, you're right, and draw closer in intimacy together, because that's what we want. We want more, greater intimacy. And when we come with a word of truth that says, hey, I need you to live more vulnerably with me, I need you to live more authentically with me. You're hiding right now. You're staying in the fog. We're asking for greater intimacy because that's where you're going to be more fully alive. Right? Those are the kind of people that we get to experience in church and we hope to live into. And so River Church, you know, I wanted to say also is where do we need to hear from God as a community? Uh, as a community, what do we need to hear from God? How do we need to be faithfully embodying the reality of the cruciform community? And we get to experience that together. Again, not sharp words of condemnation to drive people out, but for greater intimacy, because it's the power of the Spirit that's going to change our hearts, that's going to lead us into holiness. And it's a privilege that we get to do that. It's a privilege that we get to be called people of the cross. Let's pray. God, this is a a tough text to wrestle with, and it's never easy to to get that firm hand of correction. Um, But God, we do desire it because we want to be people who live in the light of your son. That is the best place to be because we know that it is the best for us. It's the best for our whole church. And so, Father, continue to draw us by your spirit into greater relational integrity with one another. Continue to foster trust, Lord, amongst all of us. Um, God, may we be people who speak truth and receive truth from one another so we can be holy people, your temple, uh, God, and so people can live faithful lives. Thank you for Jesus in your son's name. Amen. As we head to the table, as Olivia and Jasmine play for us, may we be reminded of the greatest act and that we get to do through the power of the cross to be united together because of Christ. Amen. Yes. Oh